would like to request your attention for some uh, another take on the bojangas, on the awakening factors. We look at how these awakening factors are referred to in the very oldest layer of our text, in the Sutta Pitaka. They are generally referred to as something that leads to awakening. In other words, they are the things we um, engage with, we try to engender, we do. If we look at the commentarial literature and at the Abhidharma, the uh, scholastic uh, attempt to treat the teachings of the Buddha, then we see a little shift and it seems to be that the awakening factors are more the result of things or they're more the characteristics of awakening rather than the things you do that leads to awakening. Um, I would expect that for most of us the interesting part is what uh, leads there rather than the uh, reassuring knowledge, what it is called, that, that is already happening and has come to complete fruition. So um, let us see whether we can tease out a, a little more of those. We have, it starts off with already translation issues. The first one, I believe we have said plenty of sati mindfulness is obvious, isn't it? Sati as a key facet of a function of mind that has many dimensions, one dimension leading to stillness, yeah, the stability aspect, the aspect of anchoring the mind, the aspect of uh, stabilizing the mind, the uh, quality that is capable of, capable of penetrating into something and staying with it. In a way you could call this a, a positive form of attachment. Yeah? A tenacity to stay with an object rather than drift away with the um, often discursive current, with the drift, the discursive current that occurs about the object in our minds. So that dimension of sati is, I think, very obviously geared and connected with the development of stillness. Another dimension of sati is about in inquiry, investigation, probing into, fathoming, examining. Uh, you may remember the image where I spoke about sati, the image of the surgeon that uses a probe to investigate the wound or uh, the arrowhead buried in his patient's body that he can't see because the shaft of the arrow is broken off and he needs a probe to insert into the wound to find the place, the size, the shape of that arrowhead so that he can know where that arrowhead is without being able to see it and then remove that arrowhead minimally invasively. Um, and what he uses is that instrument that is fine enough to insert, to be inserted into the wound and yet stable enough to give him a tactile echo a tactile response so that he actually meets the resistance of that piece of uh, presumably metal or stone buried in our man's flesh. In the same way sati enters into something. It is 
staying with the emergent. It is staying with that which not yet has found a name. We have not yet perceived it. When a perception is that moment when something receives a label, is not just categorized as something happening immediately, but also categorized as something I already have some experience about. Thus, I recognize it, I apprehend it, and I can categorize it. Sati is earlier than that. It is capable of being with things before they have a name. And that examining, that probing into, is, I think, beautifully uh, exemplified in the image of the doctor, the wound surgeon that receives his uh, uh, injured patient. So the aspect of examining, inquiring into, investigating is very uh, obviously a powerful nucleus in the quality of sati. Then we have sati uh, as a key to uh, the, the unfolding of the Brahma-viharas, the unfolding of uh, qualities of empathy. And we have sati as a, a facet or a, a kind of a, a seed quality at the, at the development of ethic. Because without discernment of what is wholesome and unwholesome, uh, there is no development of ethic. We need some rudimentary discernment. Generally the texts speak of bright and dark or of kusala and akusala, of wholesome and unwholesome. This is not good and bad. Yeah? Uh, there is a subtle distinction there. Um, the bright and dark and the wholesome and unwholesome refers to qualities of intention, not to qualities um, necessarily just uh, of moral judgment. You know, there's a distinction there. Dhamma-vijaya is a tricky term because it obviously uh, implies vijaya, examination that's fairly straightforward probing into investigating uh, what these dhammas exactly are that are investigated the tradition has found a variety of interpretations um, some people generally the uh, more scholastic end of the spectrum and um, as somebody coming from a contemplative tradition I can't help feeling that some of the scholastic traditions sometimes simply lack the contemplative experience of what they write about. Um, so many uh, of the scholastic interpreters have identified the meaning of Dhamma in the context of Dhamma Vijaya as simply as the categories of Buddhist teaching. In other words, you, you don't investigate the Dhammas of your experience, but you investigate the Dhammas of Buddhist teaching. Which seems, you know, a good enough, uh, it's fair enough, it's good to uh, acquaint oneself with the categories in which the Buddha refers to um, the world, refers to the mind. I think there is great value to this, um, to learn what a khanda is, to learn what an ayatana is, to learn um, the way Buddhist um, psychology understands interrelationship of factors of mind. I think that is a useful skill and I, I try to help people learn the value, the practical value of this. However, uh, I would not want to relegate the notion of Dhamma Vijaya to actually uh, examining concepts of Buddhist teaching. While I have great 
faith in the value of the concepts of Buddhist teaching. I think the Dhamma in there is also a Dhamma that uh, um, is uh, referring to phenomena of experience. So, generally the practice traditions, irrespective of the Thai or the Burmese ones I'm definitely clear about, and some of the Sinhalese practice traditions as well, were quite clear that the Dhammas are states of mind, states of body, states of experience. Anything that can be called a Dhamma, anything that can occur and can be an event, if you want uh, to look at it in a very process-oriented way, then these are events in my experience. And any such Dhamma is a legitimate um, quality of investigation. So Dhamma Vijayam, very obviously connected with the wisdom aspect. Virya, that's where emancipatory effort comes in. You know? Virya has a dimension that is mental, then we would call this probably more will or determination, motivation, and it has a quality of uh, exertion which uh, also has, again, a component of will, but also is willing to put up with, say, resistance, sleepiness, fatigue, habit, um, lack of comfort, the willingness to actually arouse oneself and go against the grain, or to do what is difficult. Piti, again, has both a mental and a bodily component. The mental component can be framed as interest, as zeal, sometimes it is translated, um, and is differing in intensity. The term actually doesn't state much about intensity. What it states is a relationship that we can discern in many other places in the suttas, that there is a connection between application, as in virya, as in energy, and a resultant quality that occurs in the mind. If we put our heart into something, if we uh, lean into something, if we apply ourselves for something, then usually there is some joy coming there. There is something happening there. We feel vitalized, we feel energized, we, we get going. There is something that uh, has an uplifting quality. Now, this uplifting energy is probably the major characteristic of, of piti. Whether that be mental, as being inspired, or as being interested in something and pulled by that thing, rather than us having to kind of push towards it. Or whether that is an energetic buoyancy that comes up and that gradually uh, vitalizes the body, makes it vibrate, makes it uh, possibly tingle, uh, gives us uh, a sense of being connected into a larger uh, field of energetic experience of which we are part of, and gradually tapers off into a sort of vitalized, deep stillness. Initially, that stillness is um, bodily, yeah, pasadi. It's a kind of a relaxed, vitalized tone of body. That sets in. In my case, I, I often sense that my uh, parts of my back are finally uh, knots are being undone, or it seems that I do 
this upright sitting with a lot less muscular effort, with a lot less holding and structuring and um, investing uh, energy, suddenly this is this becomes flowing. It is, I go into cruise. Yeah, that's how it feels. Yeah, um, it kind of it has a there's a kind of a gliding effect that sets in, and you you have the momentum seems to carry itself. And then that tapers off. That tapers off and becomes more still. Initially bodily, and then um, this pasadi is also affecting the mind. And there's a kind of a, a stillness and generally a, a widening of space. Where exactly the difference between that uh, tranquility of body and uh, the tranquility of mind, and it's the latter which is crucial for the next stage, where that tranquility of mind sets in, that deepens into samadhi, it's hard to say. Mm. If you speak with different teachers who know about such things, they they tend to draw the line in slightly different places. You know, everybody agrees four o'clock in the afternoon is afternoon, and everybody agrees ten o'clock at night is night. But where does the afternoon end? Where is the beginning of dusk, where is, you know, the beginning of the night, uh, there's some leeway in there. The beginnings, you know, the, the midpoints in full night and full afternoon are fairly clear. But where exactly you draw the line, and past the ends and samadhi begins, if you speak with teachers, they, they tend to differ on that. In fact, they differ on quite a number of things. Um, you bother finding out how people with meditative experience refer to jhanas, then you will find uh, major differences when you speak with Thai forest monks or whether you speak with um, people from Ayakema's corner or whether you speak with Mahasi's people or whether you speak with Paok's people. Yeah, they have very, they all refer to the same terminology, but actually, if you look close, there's considerable distinctions there. And where exactly people draw the line, it's not so clear-cut. Um, Samadhi, remember the word, collectedness is the, the beginning of this. Samadhati means to collect, to put together. It's something that is put together. It's a mind that does not dissipate anymore. So the movement is in a way simple. You give it an object of attention, that's how you begin. You learn to steady your attention. Your attention wants to run away, wants to run away. It seeks, according to its habit, to be vitalized by um, pleasant things or by unpleasant things if you're so inclined. Yeah. So you go around seeking things that give you good feelings or you go around seeking things that give you bad feelings because you have decided that this somehow works for you. Yeah, that bad feelings make you more alive. You have something to complain, you have something to lack, to be deficient of, to be suffering from, to, to not be recognized, to be victimized by. Or you go around thinking nice things, pleasing things, comforting things, good things, fine things, enjoyable things. This is not very difficult to understand. We all do this. Just because you have a tendency to do one doesn't mean you're never going to do the other. In fact, most of us are quite mixed in our characters. Yeah? 
we can behave like full-blown greed characters in many areas of our lives and be highly aversive in other areas of our lives. So you can have lice and flee, unfortunately. Yeah? Just because you have one doesn't mean you're safe from the other. So let's not be simplistic about this. All such models, characteriology, whether ancient as the charita, uh, characteriology as they are occurring in the Visuddhimagga, or uh, neo-Reikian character models, all of this stuff is probably less useful than um, it may appear in, at the first glance, um, simply because typologies never quite work out, whether they are Jungian or Reichian or Visuddhimagaish. Yeah? Human beings are complicated and are diverse, and no simple typology just does the fits. And if it fits, it's dangerous because it's going to be reductionist in some way. And you may change. You know, typologies are not God-given curses you have to live with throughout your lives. You can change. I've made remarkable progress on the path of struggling with aversion to embracing greed. You know, in my course of practice. So it's quite possible. That, you know, while in your head you're still one type, actually you've, <laughs> you've moved on. <laughs> you're embodying now another typology, which um, you better learn what is happening. So samadhi is when the mind stops doing this in a big way. When the mind actually stops its centrifugal force, when it stops dissipating, yeah? And you can do less work to attend. You, can, you do have to less do this kind of thing. Yeah. So you give it something to play with, the breath, a mantra, a meta phrase, um, a body sensation, and you keep bringing the mind back softly, gently, hopefully, uh, consistently, you know, in a sort of motherly way. Yeah. Bringing it back, and it, it wants to run away like sand, and you just kind of keep bringing it back, keep bringing it back. And after a while, it, it does that less. It seems to lose viscosity. Yeah? It seems to stay longer with the breath or with whatever object chosen. And after a while, this, is, this effortful, uh, intentional bringing back seems to uh, only take a little bit here and a little bit there, and then it's, it stays more with things. It seems to actually begin, and that's the crucial part, to enjoy being with what it is asked to do. Yeah? It develops a more intimate relationship with its object. And that's why that relationship metaphor is again very useful, because you know, you begin to befriend what you have spent time with. You begin to appreciate, you begin to deepen into, you begin to rest. Yeah? You're not always worried that it's going to reject you or you have to make yourself different so that you're not losing your edges towards it or, you know, you kind of, you can stay. Friends are people who are nice and who know you and despite that still are willing to stay with you, yeah, and you're willing to stay with them. You know them. You don't need to explain everything again. So you begin to be a friend of your object. Your relationship becomes more quiet and, in a way, more deep. And that deepening means that you can do less effort. It means the space increasingly begins to widen. 
Although you may have begun with a very small object or a very defined anchor for your attention, now this very same defined anchor seems to lose its edges and open into a space, as if you go through sort of a narrow passage and then it widens out again. And once you trust this, this will just deepen. You can rest. You can rest your will. You can rest your attentional deliberation. You can rest the doing part of your uh, mind. And in that resting, something usually deeply pleasing is happening. Something um, blissful, something trusting, something confident, something that offers solace. A kind of solace that is inviting you to basically deepen into. That's, that's, that's how samadhi feels. And then, usually there is something either pleasant or very, very attractively still, beautiful, or just something trusting. And when you deepen into this, usually the breath is somewhere not too far. Um, it's an, it doesn't feel controlled. Although the mind is still, it is a stillness that is not, you know, under duress. It's not the stillness of will. It's not the stillness of concentration. It's the stillness of a, a mind that doesn't want to run away anymore. A mind that is willing to be with. And once you trust this, find your way in there. Don't try to be bolshy with it. It's hard. You know, when it gets good, you want to get more. Yeah? So you, you can scare it away. Yeah? You can be so eager that you scare it away again. And then you will lose it. Yeah. And it will, you will have to do the necessary courtship again uh, to arrive at that place. Um, and that may take some time. Uh, if you have more routine, it will go faster. If you have less routine, it may take a long time till you go back there. If you have not understood how you got there, you will need to retrace your steps. Yeah. Most of us, this takes some time. And obviously, it hinges on a lot of helpful conditions. It hinges on our health, on our energy, it hinges on the control we have over our environment. It hinges on uh, talent and obviously on, on you know how many hours we put in. It hinges on our skill. It hinges on uh, maybe teaching. If we are supported in this, then that can be a tremendous help. And you know a few other things, um, food, weather, um, this kind of thing. So samadhi is a highly contingent experience. That's why it doesn't liberate. That's why you can't take it home. Samadhi is like going into the casino and you get plastic money. Yeah? It is very powerful in there. But if you want to go out, you need to cash in first. You need to. Samadhi is not convertible. Yeah? The only thing that is convertible is wisdom. That's the thing that is going to, that's what you're going to carry home. And that's what you're going to be able to use in your life. Samadhi is also useful insofar as it instills you with the confidence that this mind is capable of such experience. It is intrinsically healing to feel that your mind is capable of a happiness that doesn't hinge on your fridge or your bank account or the number of your Facebook friends. Yeah. This is a very, it's the first time in your life that you really have a genuine alternative to sense pleasure when you have a way to f create happiness 
through stillness of mind, because then and only then do you have a first time an alternative to sensory gratification. And you will always try to, be, the mind always tries to be happy. Even miserable people try to be happy in, in their own crooked ways. And we, since we all try to be happy, we all try to do that in ways we, we can imagine that for us. And if we have no access to stillness of mind, then we cannot really uh, reproach our minds to want friends and chocolate and safety and, you know, the biggest bang for our buck, basically. This is just psychologically unreal to reproach our minds from trying to be happy in ways the mind knows. So unless we have actually a realistic other means to make the mind experience contentment, bliss, wholeness, and profound sense of ease, unless we have that, the mind always will want to get happy in ways it knows. So samadhi, in many ways, is the first possibility for us to get a perspective on the sensory world and sensory pleasure and sensory gratification. That is why it is also important, not just for the generation of wisdom, but also for the genuine confidence that this mind is capable of a contentment and of an ease and of a, a blissful abiding without being furnished all its uh, sensory desires. Upeka, the last one, comes from the verb is upaikshati, meaning looking across, over and across something, suggesting two things. A, a panoramic perspective. Yeah? Upeka sees the big picture. And B, it suggests impartiality. Upeka is also a Brahma-vihara, as you know. And... Um, Upeka is powerfully, uh, the body has something to say about Upeka, let me phrase it like this. Our bodies are capable of holding uh, uh, a variety of experiences at the same time. Right now, the top of my hand is cool and the, 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 the inside of my hand is warm yeah, as it lies on my right knee. This hand is capable of holding both of these experiences at the same time. The bodies are doing marvelous jobs at doing multiple realities. It's very difficult to hold questions in your head that are mutually exclusive at the same time. My mind is rather rapid sort of oscillation movements, but a body can actually hold double, double reality. So in many ways, the body teaches us a lot about equanimity. Being with things, even though they are not perfect. Creating a space of ease in that which is uncomfortable. Creating closeness, even though that closeness breeds pain, maybe. Or there's painful things in that closeness that are also there. Um, Upeka is but powerful because it it sees the okayness in that which is not okay. It sees the possibility for growth in that which looks like a catastrophe. It sees that there is 
a set of conditions that has led to this particular situation, which may be completely outside of my control. I may wish to fix it, I may wish to fix it for you, I may wish to be the one who fixes it for you, and yet there is a conditionality at work in your life and in my life, and I may not be able to to be the one I would like to be for you. You may not be able to address what comes up right now. So upeka is the quality that acknowledges boundaries. It acknowledges um, the possibility of being with things that are not perfect. It acknowledges that there is a difference in our history. It acknowledges meanness and you-ness in this. It acknowledges a field reality that is bigger than maybe just the two of us. This is an important quality to have some access to because other than that, uh, we keep thinking in terms, it's either me or you. you So if I'm going into a warrior mode, then you win or I win, but we can't win both. Or if I'm going into a therapist mode, then it's, you know, um, I need to fix this or or I fail at it. You know, your your neurosis is stronger than my therapy. (laughs) Or your need is bigger and I can't meet it. So people working at uh, in a place where there is a lot of suffering are particularly in need of learning about upeka. Um, and uh, otherwise, the alternative to upeka is um, conflict or burnout. Yeah. Many people who are faced with a lot of need, and a lot of suffering, uh, find it hard because of a lack of understanding of Ukebeka, of being with that need without feeling responsible to fix it. And when you do not have, when you have the compassion to actually want to fix it, but you don't have the Ukebeka to understand conditionality or to understand meanness or you-ness or to understand boundaries or to understand that you can't be responsible for the suffering that you meet. Although you feel it, it's unpleasant and your compassion compels you to do something about it. There are boundaries and limits to what you can do. And if you do not understand that, then you either numb out because you can't bear it any longer, or you burn out. You try to overextend. And because the need here seems to be greater than the need here, you downplay this need in favor of looking after that need. And this is not sustainable. Yeah. So Upeka is, a, as a meditator, um, Upeka is in a way more refined than I have just described. It is the capacity of abiding in impartiality. It's a, it's a, a mind that has, through stillness, found a place where it doesn't budge anymore. Yeah? Even though the, way the Vedana may still occur, it doesn't, it doesn't want to bite anymore. It doesn't want to shy away anymore. Upeka is the place where it takes. If it's praise, it takes it. If it's blame, it takes it. We all can do that in good moments. And we probably all struggle with that in not so good moments. It's a place of confidence. It's a place where 
I know I can hold a few things. I know I can do a few things. Uh, it's placid. It's in terms of Buddhist psychology, it's the highest emotional tone of the mind. Yeah. In terms of the jhanas, upekasati is the last quality to actually stay. Even sukha, piti goes uh, very early, sukha goes very early, and what remains is upeka, yeah. a mind that is in a bright. Um, buoyant quality of profound equanimity. Now understand, this is still a relational aspect. This is not, I have finally achieved a degree of indifference where nothing that's going on, nothing that you can say or do is going to have any impact on me. That's not upeka. That is its close enemy called indifference. And it's a big problem. Upeka means you're sensitive. It means you are related, you are connected, and yet you know the you-ness, and you know the uh, me-ness in this. You, you know your own. You don't lose your own if you're confronted or if you're overwhelmed or meet the other. Good. wanted to read you a small part. Um, I wish this would be a little more... Uh, It's one of the passages where I hoped to get out a little more than is here, but we do find a passage in the Bojanga Samyutta and the um, Samyutta, the group of awakening factors, about the nutriments for awakening factors. Just as the body, sustained by nutriment, subsists in dependence on nutriment and does not subsist without nutriment, so too the seven factors of awakening, sustained by nutriment, subsist in dependent independence on nutriment and do not subsist without nutriment. What, monks, is the nutriment of the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of mindfulness for the fulfillment by development of the arisen awakening factor of mindfulness? There are, <coughs> monks, things that are the basis for the awakening factor of mindfulness. Unless, unfortunately, these things are not stipulated here. Um, <coughs> The commentary then, the, um, remember the, uh, I'm not very original in where I quote from, most of what I've quoted to you so far is from the Samyutta Nikaya, the, uh, the illustrator of core meaning, the Sarata Pakarsini, uh, helpfully suggests that here the things that are the basis for mindfulness are the Satipatthanas. Um, The sub-commentary insists that it is the attention directed to the things that are um, impermanent and not self and uh, uh, dukkha. Uh, the sub-commentary also suggests the things that are the basis for mindfulness here are the 30, 37 wings of awakening, the Bodhipakya Dhamma. Um, I, I regret this um, lack of detail here. I do think uh, 37 Bodhipakidamas and 4 Satipatthanas are certainly good. I personally, and with no canonical authority whatsoever, would like to add that basically the stuff that arises in your mind is the things that you should cultivate your mindfulness on. It's the stuff. That's this, You're in the right movie. What's happening is what's in need of being addressed. How you address this 
you know, by studiously putting it aside or by developing it or by investigating it or by counterbalancing it is another question, um, which is not just done by sati, it's done by all kinds of other things, which some of them will come up here. What is the nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of this discrimination of states? There are, monks, wholesome and unwholesome states, blameable and blameless states, inferior and superior states, darks and bright states with their counterparts. Frequently given careful attention to them is the nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of discernment of states and for the fulfillment by development of the arisen enlightenment factor of discrimination of states. So, interesting it's not just good stuff we are called to investigate. You know? so the idea that we just investigate the good things, that we strengthen the good things, although valid, is actually not really borne out by our passage. We are equally um, encouraged to investigate the dark stuff, the blameworthy stuff, uh, the inferior stuff. Yeah. So, in other words, we have to have some pragmatic and realistic capacity to investigate stuff that is not immediately pleasing, that is not promising gratification. Sometimes people say mindfulness as a sobhana chetasika, basically being intrinsically wholesome, uh, cannot be used to investigate things that are unwholesome, because mindfulness can only be um, present when nothing unwholesome is present. I uh, think this is one of the sad um, attempts uh, trying to get things more clear than is useful. To sustain a particular Abhidharma theory which says all Chaitasikas uh, are com uh, categorized into wholesome and uh, unwholesome uh, or radiant and unwholesome ones and neutral ones and they all arise completely before the next one cease completely before the next one arises, uh, seems to almost outdo the possibility of having mindfulness actually look into or address something unwholesome. I do not think that this is practically a problem. The, the suttas completely make obvious that we are encouraged to establish with mindfulness and examination both blameless and blameworthy, both superior and inferior, both wholesome and unwholesome, both bright and dark states. I think there can be little doubt if we read this. The nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of energy and for the fulfillment of the uh, development of the arisen awakening factor of energies is the element of arousal, the element of endeavor, the element of exertion. Which sounds rather athletic, isn't it? So it doesn't say let go placidly, go away and observe from a distance. It says um, um, endeavor, arousal, exertion. The nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of rapture, again, is slightly flat here. There are because things that are the basis for the awakening factor of rapture, uh, frequently giving careful attention to is the nutriment and so forth. Unfortunately, uh, this is very, um, it's, uh, it doesn't tell us anything. But from what we heard from the Bikunis quarter the other day, uh, it is something that has to do with what is pleasant, what is inspiring, 
and what is uplifting. Something, the term pasadanya, which tragically does not occur in this sutta, but has occurred in a few other suttas as the object of that which gives rise to inspiration in the mind. The pleasant, the beautiful, the inspiring as an incentive of the mind to engender rapture, to engender interest, to engender zeal, to engender um, pity. The nutriment for the ar- arising of the unarisen awakening factor of, uh, oh, sorry, I missed one. Tranquility, I've missed. Um, the nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of tranquility and for the um, fulfillment by development of the arisen awakening factor of tranquility. Uh, there are uh, practitioners tranquility of body and tranquility of mind. Frequently given careful attention to them is the nutriment for the arising uh, of the unarisen awakening factor of tranquility and for the fulfillment by development of the arisen awakening factor. So, that gives us a little something. The, the, The mind and the body go often at different paces, quiet. So, by attending to something quieting, we get a feedback loop. We get a strengthening by attending to the soothing of the breath. The breath becomes even more quiet. By attending to the soothed breathing, the mind becomes quiet. Yeah? Remember, the principle is very, in a way, very simple. By it, attending to, taking up, off, and giving, re- recurrently coming back to, we strengthen the quality of mind that is inherent in the thing that we attend to. In other words, the mind simply begins to resemble the stuff we keep bringing it back to. Yeah. So, if you watch TV adverts, your mind will begin to uh, resemble your mi- the speed and the complexity of the associations that are in TV adverts. If you're attending to your breath, your mind will gradually take up the rhythm. It will settle down. It will be soothed, softened. Uh, it will be embodied because it connects with the quality of the object to which you keep returning your attention to. That is crucial because in that way you begin to have a say, not what you actually experience. That's usually where we don't have a say in. We have a say in how we relate to, not what we get. But if you keep relating to something that is an appropriately soothing and stilling object of mind, if your situation allows that, as on a retreat, you increasingly begin to have a say, not just in how you relate, but in also what you get. That is a powerful little uh, twist there. The nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of of unification, there are monks, the sign of serenity, the sign of non-dispersal. So two nimittas are suggested to us. The, serine, the sign of serenity, let me quickly look, Pali. Um, the samatha nimitta and the, serine, the sign of non-dispersal. That's an interesting one, that's a rare one. Uh, the abhyaka nimitta, oh, that's, an, that's an unusual non-dispersal. Remember that image, kind of the the non-dissipation. I I kind of made this image, putting things together, collecting, collecting, collecting. This non-dispersal, things that do not run away. 
things that are reasonably clear in their boundaries, things that are not pulling us, that are not pushing us. So an appropriate samatha object is something uh, that does neither pull us nor push us. It's not the most dramatically easy thing to attend to because it has an immense traction. Yeah. That doesn't make it a good samatha object. Samatha object is something uh, reasonably neutral, something that doesn't evoke passion or aversion in us. What is the nutriment for the arising of the unarisen awakening factor of equanimity? Again, we were just left with a few things that are the basis for the awakening factor of equanimity. That doesn't tell us much. But at least we got a few things out. We got a body, uh, a body tranquility and a mind tranquility. We got some information about the, uh, the element of arousal, of endeavor, of exertion. We got some information about discernment of uh, awakening factors, the nutriment for that, the investigation of wholesome and unwholesome, blameable, blameless, superior, inferior, dark and bright states, and their counterparts. So good, we'll proceed and see whether we dig up something later on that tells us more. Huh? Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.